As we left off uh, last Sunday with Mark's teaching in chapter 14, uh, for quite a while we've been in the upper room with Jesus and his apostles and the events that occurred there. And then there at the last verse of uh, chapter 14, uh, the Lord said that the, that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. So they're leaving the upper room, and from this point on, uh, in John at least, up to about chapter 18, they're going to be generally making their way toward Gethsemane and the events that will happen there. But between now and leaving the upper room and getting to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus does a heap of teaching. It's, it's as if already started in the upper room with teaching, trying to prepare his apostles for his uh, imminent departure and leaving them physically. Uh, and it just seems that, that he is intent on reinforcing everything that he can uh, before in just a few hours he goes to the cross. And so that's where we are as we begin chapter 15. Uh, actually, chapter 15 uh, quite naturally divides itself into uh, three uh, sections, distinct sections, all having to do with relationships. In verses 1 through 11 of chapter 15, he's talking about the relationship of the believer or the Christian to Jesus. And then in verses 12 through 17, he's going to be talking about the relationship between the Christian or the believer uh, to each other, Christians to each other. And then lastly, verses 18 through 27, he's going to be talking about relationship of the Christian to the world. And so as we uh, begin, we will be looking at the first one of these uh, sections, uh, the relationship of the believer or the Christian to Jesus. And this is the first 11 verses, and this is where we have the allegory of the vine and the branches. And it's interesting that there, there is such deep and profound teaching in uh, this allegory of the vine and the branches and its application to Christians uh, that the other gospel writers did not choose to include this in their writings. Uh, only John here is talking about this. But it's very interesting, uh, very deep, very practical. So let's uh, just begin by reading the first 11 verses, then we'll go back and uh, begin to dissect it. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So we call this an allegory, a comparison between Two things that are, are similar to each other with a lesson that is intended. And this is the allegory of the vine and the branches. Uh, how many of you are familiar with uh, vineyards, growing grapes? Anybody? Late in my growing up, uh, about right over there, uh, my parents began to grow grapes. Uh, this was pretty much after I had left home, so I don't know much about it. But uh, they had just uh, about four or five grapevines, and Dad had put, uh, put up a, a little, well, several posts with a barbed wire uh, running across the top. And that's where he tried to train the, uh, the vine to, to grow. And so uh, every Thanksgiving about this time, we could expect my mother to bring out a gallon jug of homemade grape juice, and it was delicious. I remember one time she opened it up, and somehow the seal had broken, and we had a jolly old time that Thanksgiving. <laughs> no, she threw it out. But anyway, uh, vine dressing. Uh, Tending vineyards is very interesting. We were uh, a little closer to it uh, when we were in Romania, Eastern Europe, and pretty much uh, a lot of places in Europe, especially in East Europe, uh, there are vineyards. We watch public television a lot. All we've got is an antenna. We're in a dead spot over there. Cable, DSL, all of that is all around us, but not where we are. And so our television reception is what the antenna will bring in, and public television is, is one of them. And they, they have uh, several shows, travel shows, mainly in Europe, and invariably they're, they're just kind of obsessed with uh, drinking wine and all of this, and it shows all of the process and the vineyards and everything. But we got to see some of this up close as we traveled in Romania. A uh, whole entire hillside would just be covered with these uh, 
vineyards. And uh, so it was a common occupation in the first century in Palestine. A lot of vine dressing. People were familiar with it. Uh, many uh, had this as their occupation, uh, the husbandry or uh, vine dressing as they called it. And it's interesting to speculate that maybe as they are leaving the upper room and generally making their way toward Gethsemane, perhaps they were even walking through a vineyard at that very time, if possible, and just taking what's common right around them to speak these words in this allegory of the vine and the branches and to make application of it. But the vine figured prominently in uh, Israel's history. I understand through uh, the sources that I studied for this lesson that uh, even over the doorway to the temple there was a golden vine representing uh, Israel as the vine of God, that, that God is uh, there and that uh, they, Israel are, uh, is his people. And so very familiar uh, imagery in the minds of people in that day and time. But Jesus applied this allegory of the vine and branches to the relationship between him and his disciples. There are some resemblance between the two relationships, between uh, the physical vineyard and what all is involved that, and Jesus' relationship to his disciples, to his apostles, to Christians today, to you and I. But there are about five points of similarity between these two uh, ideas. One, both require the right stock. Two, both require the right vine dresser. Both require the right pruning. Both require the right contact. And both require the right harvest. So let's look at these one by one. Beginning in verse one, uh, the similarity in this allegory between uh, Christ and his disciples is that it must have the right stock. He says, I am the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. And this word uh, true simply means genuine or real. So Jesus is saying, I am the original true vine upon which all of the others are patterned in design and function. We are reminded in Acts 4 verse 12 that only Jesus can say that there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby men must be saved. Jesus Christ. So he is the true vine. So the same holds true with us today. Uh, our source for everything is, is Christ, the true vine. If we are a branch, if we are a Christian, we are a branch, and we are attached to the one true genuine vine, the source of all goodness and salvation, Jesus Christ. But then also in verse 1, and uh, this is the second point of similarity, 
uh, there is, has to be the right vine dresser. And here in verse 1, Jesus just plainly says that my father is the vine dresser of his spiritual vineyard. He is the one who tends to it. We know that a true vine dresser must know what he's doing. He, he must be an expert. There is a right way and a wrong way uh, to tend vineyards and grapes and vines. You've got to know how and when to prune. If you don't do it right, it can, on one hand, be fruitless or barren. On the other hand, you can prune it so much that, that it will die. And so the vine dresser, the one who is responsible for tending the vineyard, must know this, must have this knowledge of how and when to prune the, uh, the vineyard, the, the branches. And so the spiritual vineyard is tended by God himself. And God alone knows best how to train and develop uh, the characteristics and personality of the branches. You and me are of Christians. But then we go on to verses 2 and 3 in the text. And here we see the third point of similarity. That there must be the right method of pruning. And this is brought about by the, uh, the phrase, the two words, every branch. Notice again, every branch. In me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may produce more fruit. So here we understand that there are two principles that have to be observed in proper vine dressing and proper pruning. First of all, deadwood must be completely removed. It must not be allowed to remain. It's detrimental to the growth and the productivity of the vineyard. If deadwood, and this, this occurs uh, for whatever reason, and it has to be removed on a continual basis, and then on the other hand, the live wood must be severely cut back and underscore the word severely. In fact, it must be cut back to the point that a person not familiar with it might say, well, you're, you're going to kill it. You're cutting it back too much. Uh, and again, uh, we noticed uh, when we were around this kind of thing several years ago, that in the springtime, a properly pruned vineyard, it just looks like a, a field of barren stumps. Uh, it just looks like a, a field with a bunch of, of vines, but that's, that's all. No leaves, no anything. It just looks like, uh, well, certainly this is not going to survive. But then in the fall, you go back, and it is full, those same vines that you thought maybe were going to be killed because of the cutting back so severely, they're full of lush leaves and fruit, bunches and bunches of, of grapes. Uh, we even had a grape arbor in the compound where the church building was uh, there in Arad, uh, Concord Grapes. And every time uh, when the fruits were, the grapes were there, 
We couldn't go in the compound, but what my wife would uh, stay behind a little bit. She would be out there plucking the grapes off and, and eating them. So that's, that's the reality, though. You've got to know the right method of pruning. You've got to be bold. You've got to be brave. You have to have faith in what you're doing. So Christians are the branches, and we are connected to the vine, Jesus Christ. And the fruit is what Christians produce because of our relationship to Jesus. Now, this fruit that we're talking about here and the pruning, the proper pruning, cutting the dead branches away and cutting back severely the, the new growth, the fruit that this method produces, I think, could be described in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. The fruit of the Spirit that we're all familiar with. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of this is the spiritual fruit that proper pruning uh, produces in a vine. So here is just a, a, a summary of the correct method of pruning. First of all, Jesus is the only true vine that produces the spiritual fruit. And two, you must be connected to Jesus in order to become a fruit-bearing branch. And three, God is the vine dresser, and he is active in either pruning for growth or cutting away the dead wood. You either produce fruit, and he's talking about us, the branches, Christians. You either produce fruit, in which case you are pruned to allow more growth, or you do not produce, then you are cut away altogether. And those dead branches are put together, and as we will learn a little bit later, they're destroyed, they're burned. So this then tells us then that uh, this third point of similarity is the right, there has to be the right method of pruning, both sides of it, the dead wood and the live wood. Then the fourth point of similarity is the right contact. And this is brought about by the phrase, abide in me and I in you, in verse 4. Notice it again. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, in the process of uh, tending to the vines, uh, the process of pruning must never sever the fruit-bearing branches from the main vine. You might come close to it in the cutting back like we've been talking about, but you can't go so far as to completely detach the fruit-bearing branch from the vine. Now, this word abide here in uh, this passage is significant. And if you'll notice, if you'll count, and I think this is pretty much true in all translations, between verses 4 and 11... 
The word abide appears ten times in one form or another. Ten times. There must be something very important about this word, this uh, idea of abiding. Jesus abiding in us. We abiding in him. Now what this word abide means is a maintenance of an unbroken connection rather than just staying in place. When we talk in our conversation and use the word abide, uh, it usually means staying in place. Uh, If you uh, abide with me, you are with me. I believe the uh, NIV translation translates this, remain, remain in me and I remain in you. But it's, uh, it's talking about an unbroken connection. It's not just that you are there and abiding or remaining in Jesus. It has to do with a true connection. There is activity going on in that connection. It's not just a static uh, process or thing. It refers to the necessity of a constant active relationship between the Christian and his Lord if the resultant life is to be productive. So again, the idea here in abide is being connected, but being actively connected. In a physical vine and branches, there is more than just the connection more than just the branch being attached to the main vine, there is nutrients, there is water and everything coming from the ground up through the vine into the branches. There is activity going there. And the same is true in the spiritual application. We are the branches, Jesus is the vine. We are connected to Jesus and we abide in him. And that abiding, that remaining, is active. There, is, there are things going on in that connection. And again, I think there is great significance in this section of the phrase, abide in me. Look at verse 4. And you'll see at the very beginning and at the very end of that uh, verse, uh, you have abide. And so in between those two words, in this one verse 4, In short, you have the plan of redemption of mankind. It all has to do with being in Christ and remaining in Christ in the truest sense of the word. It all depends on that. If you're out of Christ, then logically you're outside of all blessings that are to be had in Christ. You must be in Christ. You must remain in Christ. I must abide in Christ. This is an interesting study. And uh, if you are interested, it would do you well to spend some time with your concordance, looking through the scriptures of all the times, especially in Paul's writing, but also John here and also in 1 John. Uh, where they talk about the concept of in Christ, the in Christ concept. And it's one that so many of our religious neighbors completely miss the point on because it is so significant. Let me just briefly 
give you a few of these instances. The in Christ principle. Romans 8 verse 1. Paul says that in Christ there is no condemnation. Romans 8 1. In Ephesians 1 7. Paul says in Christ there is redemption. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 10. Paul says, in Christ there is salvation. In Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Paul says, in Christ there are all spiritual blessings. And then John again in 1 John 5, 11 says, in Christ there is eternal life. So these are some of the verses Paul places heavy emphasis on this concept, the in Christ uh, concept. So if all of these things, no condemnation, eternal life, redemption, salvation, all spiritual blessings, if all of these things are in Christ, shouldn't the logical question be, well, how do I get into Christ? How do I get into Christ? Wherein are these blessings and out of which there are not these blessings. How do I get into Christ? And it's always been amazing to me that there are really only two scriptures in God's word that literally tells how one gets into Christ. And you know what it is. In Romans 3 or 6 in verse 3, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ. Jesus were baptized into his death. Paul says that we are baptized into Christ Jesus. And then the other one is Galatians 3.27. Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, of course, that doesn't uh, diminish the other conditions of salvation. We cannot be saved without faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We cannot be saved without repenting or turning from our sins and turning to God. We cannot be saved unless we confess Christ as the Son of God before others. So these are all conditions without which one cannot be saved, but the scriptures doesn't say anywhere that one believes into Christ or that one repents into Christ or that one confesses into Christ only when it says about baptism only when it speaks of baptism does it say that we are baptized into Christ so all of these conditions are required, but the point at which one actually enters Christ, wherein, according to Romans chapter 6, the first several verses, is the blood of Christ that was shed in his death. Only in by being baptized into Christ do we make that contact. And that's the idea in the vine and the branches. There is that activity. That is, instead of the physical vine with the water coming up from the roots through the vine into the branches making fruit, we have the blood of Christ 
flowing through the branch into, or the vine and into the branches causing us because of our salvation to produce the spiritual fruit that we just talked about in Galatians. So to me that is just a wonderful uh, area of study and I would commend it to you to study it further on, on your own. Brethren, if, if people could just understand this, what is there outside of Christ? Uh, sometimes we use this uh, as a tool, as an illustration uh, in trying to study uh, with someone uh, to lead them to Christ. Uh, what is there on the left side that is to be had out of Christ? And there you have that we were enemies in fact, I'll be using this in a little while in uh, Romans chapter 5 uh, at the Lord's table. But at that time, you were without Christ. You were outside of Christ. You were enemies of God. You were lost, in other words. But over here on the right-hand side, in Christ, are all of these things that we just read about. Where do you want to be? Outside of Christ? Or in Christ, where do you want to be? Well, here is how you get into Christ. So maybe I spent too much on that, but I do think it's significant. This is one point of similarity. There has to be the right contact. The vine and the branch must be actively connected together. We must abide in Christ, and Christ must abide in us. And then we move on to verses 5 through 11. Uh, and we see that the other point of uh, commonality is there must be the right harvest. And this is born out in the idea of much fruit. Note uh, in verses 2 and verse 5 that we've already read. The threefold progress of the harvest. Now, in, in verse 2, he talks about just simply fruit, bear fruit, bearing fruit. And then in the same verse, he says you are to bear more fruit. And then in verse 5, that becomes much fruit. And so it is to be a, a vigorous, active growth process, bearing fruit, more fruit, much fruit in our lives. So it's interesting. We'll begin uh, by looking at these verses. And I don't know if we'll get finished, but we'll try. Uh, the context following the allegory of the vine and the branches uh, here in verse 5 suggests the nature of the fruit that is eventually harvested. Notice in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And so this, I think, is in the following verses through verse 10. He's going to be talking uh, about the nature of, of this fruit, this much fruit that we are expected to bear and that will be harvested. 
Notice in verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So non-fruit-bearing Christians, non-fruit-bearing Christians are like dead branches that are cut off and destroyed. I don't know if the intent in this by saying that in the physical realm the dead branches are gathered together and they are burned, if that's an allusion to eternity in hell that's been reserved for Satan and his angels and those who do not obey, who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel or not. But anyway, uh, it's imagery that we can see and and understand. Non-fruit-bearing Christians, we are to bear fruit. We are to bear spiritual fruit. If we bear this spiritual fruit that we looked at in, in Galatians a while ago, that's going to necessarily involve obeying the Great Commission, is it not? Uh, if we are full of love and kindness and joy and concern for others, for each other and for others, that's going to entail sharing the gospel plan of salvation. And so it's all together. The idea here is that we cannot be non-fruit-bearing Christians. We know the end of non-fruit-bearing branches. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. So here in verse 7, I think fruitfulness is implied in a prayer life that brings answers. In other words, a person that is truly in Christ and asking in harmony with the Father's will will have his prayers answered. Elsewhere, the scriptures tell us that if we Uh, pray and it is within the context of God's will our prayers will be answered our prayers are always answered of course sometimes it's no but they're answered but here in the context of of this allegory and uh, this idea of Jesus being the vine and we as Christians being the branches he throws in this verse 7 about prayer. And so prayer life has uh, to do with being a fruit-bearing branch. It will involve active prayer life. That's how we communicate with God, isn't it? He communicates with us through Jesus' Son and through His Word, which we have in the New Testament. We communicate with him in prayer. Uh, I guess I better just make a mark here and we'll start here next week, the Lord willing. But go home and and look at this more. And uh, as I said, uh, it, it might be interesting to engage in a study 
of what it means to be in Christ. 